Welcome everyone to Andy Here's the 70s, the show where we try and find the very best albums from the 1970s. I'm your host Andy, and this week we are listening to some of the best-selling albums from the decade. Uh, but I'm not doing this alone, of course. I, I'm joined, as always, by the best co-host in the biz, and I've been told on more than one occasion that we go together like Ramalamadlamacadingadadingadong. Uh, Aaron Keck, how are you? I was better a second ago. <laughs> you know, I had a lot of great options for the intro this week, and I, I, I'm happy with what I chose. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's that's fair. That's fair. I'm going to make this a new thing. I'm, I'm having fun with it. <laughs> uh, so when we first started on our journey through the music of the 80s, we had an early episode uh, of the bestsellers from that decade. So it only made sense to do the same for this one, especially given how many of, the, of these uh, albums like sold in this, in this group here. Uh, and since these are so huge, do you have any past experience with uh, the ones we're going to hear? Oh, yeah. Uh, so we're going to talk about five albums. I had heard... I think I actually sat down and listened to two of them all the way through from start to finish. I owned one of them on cassette for, for the longest time. And two of the albums, well, one of the albums is a greatest hit, so pretty much mm -hmm. every song on the album is well known, whether you've heard the album or not. Uh, another album is so iconic, I think, that having not heard the album from start to finish, I had still heard the vast majority of the songs on it by the time I sat down to listen for uh, to it for this episode. So uh, I was much more familiar with these albums than most episodes that we do, for better or worse. Yeah, I mean, some of these were are unavoidable, and, and uh, that's kind of reason why this is such a fun one to do. But also, there's a, such a crazy collection, I think. Like, these are not necessarily five that you would grab at the store together, but millions and millions of people did throughout the years. Yeah, I think uh, one of the nice things about listening to these five back to back to back to back to back is you're right like you wouldn't associate these artists with each other but if you listen to them all as a piece they do start to you do start to pick up affinities like yeah uh, we'll talk about elton john and meatloaf and i was struck by the similarity between the two albums uh of theirs that we're about to listen to which i would never have said going in but uh within yeah. 15 minutes i was like okay i i get where these two are coming from and it's a similar place yeah hearing all these together it really does actually kind of paint a picture of like some of the through lines that kind of connect all of these weirdly and why they might have resonated so much with people yeah, singer-songwriters, big bombastic rock, country rock, and 50s nostalgia. Like, that's yeah. that kind of covers it, right? Uh-huh. Uh, we're going to mix it up a little bit as far as the format goes. We're going to have the five albums that we've alluded to here. To, we're going to go in depth. But we're also going to count down uh, alongside the rest of the top 11 best-selling albums from the 70s in general. So almost, almost all of which we'll hear throughout the season. So it'll kind of act as both covering these bestsellers and kind of a little sneak preview of what's to come this season. So that'll be fun. Uh, and Aaron, I'm going to try, I've told you not to look anything else up. So I'm going to try and make you guess what the other six on this countdown are. I have so not looked fun. it up. I've got, I've, got my, I've got my six guesses. I'm confident about four of them. The other two I think are probably wrong, but we'll see. <laughs> I'll have some hints too, just in case. But uh, All right. as as we go along, and well, of course, at the end, we'll we'll rank these five here that we've got, and we'll pick our five favorite songs from the the collection, uh, and we'll see what those are too. So I'm excited. 
Uh, but all these all these sales figures I'm pulling from Wikipedia, which uh, all seem to be properly sourced from what I can tell. Uh, and I believe that they are because even when I started putting this episode together a few months ago, this the this the ranking has kind of shifted a few times. So I, yeah. I think these are these are accurate, and I think they're going to continue to shift even after this episode for one obvious reason at least. Oh, I'm, I'm but, sure. Uh, uh, also, well, yeah, for for absolute sure, yeah. But uh, we should say heading into this, and I'm sure we'll talk about it when we get to the specific album. Uh, properly sourced general consensus this is the accurate number but a little bit controversial because i don't for the life of me understand how the eagles greatest hits has sold as many copies as it has (laughs) and i am not alone in that skepticism so yeah there's a lot of you know with that one and it really a, a lot of them on the top 10 if you look at this i mean and the way that they've tracked these record sales over the years has changed whether it's you know copies that have shipped versus that have actually sold versus double albums counting twice or once or now as of the last five or so years how many streams it takes to equal an album sale so there's lots of variables here that are probably you know all of these probably have an asterisk next to them but i think it's still a fun list to look at regardless for sure uh, but let's get started here. The 11th best-selling album from the 70s, uh, the 42nd best-selling album of all time currently, according to that list, uh, Carol King's Tapestry. I'll play a little bit of the opening track, I Feel the Earth Move, and then we'll discuss that album. This is the only of today's five oh that I that I actually had prior to this season. So and it's really just like hit after hit after hit. Yeah, this is the one that I was talking about where I'd not heard this album all the way through, but honestly, I kind of had because I sit down and mm-hmm. listen to it, and m- not all of the songs, but most of them are pretty iconic '70s hits. So and in some cases '60s hits because "Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow" was a carol king original but she was not the first person who recorded it this was a huge smash before she sat down to record it for tapestry so several of these were already big hits before tapestry even happened yeah exactly will you love you tomorrow went number one for the shirelles when she wrote it for him in 1960 and i mean she had been writing for throughout the 60s she'd written so many songs that had gone to the top of the charts i mean the locomotion even for one which is yeah, hilarious yeah I mean, but her and her her writing partner and uh, for nine years marriage partner, uh, Jerry Goffin, were just cranking out hits in uh, over in the Brill Building in New York, which was something I learned about looking this up, which has to be the least sexy name for a music like <laughs> industry thing of all time. 
Yeah, it's not stacks, is it? No. But, uh, yeah, I mean, she was writing all these hits, and finally, this is her second album. She came out with Writer in 1970. This comes out in 71. Uh, and gets her own number one hit with uh, uh, with It's Too Late, which was a mm-hmm. double A side with I Feel the Earth Move. So sometimes it's credited to both, but I think generally the airplay actually went to It's Too Late, which is kind of surprising because I Feel the Earth Move, I think, is the one that to me kind of lasted longer. Ah, ooh, that's a good that's a good question. So I I listened to these albums, God help me on Spotify, uh with the the ones that I don't already own. And I will say uh Spotify does a good job like tracking how many streams each individual song has and I think mm-hmm. It's Too Late is her number 1 in terms of okay. Spotify streams. It's Too Late has more than any others. Although I feel the Earth Move is still up there. Uh, I think it's too late actually has as much staying power, if not more. Having said that, the opening, just like that piano riff for I Feel the Earth Move is so good. And it's such a great way to kick off the album. Like it's it's real hard to sustain that level of high quality greatness after just the opening 10 seconds of I Feel the Earth Move. And I think it's a testament to this album that she manages to do it, but that's still a highlight even at the the end. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it took me by surprise, but It's Too Late is actually, it might be my favorite on here. So I was kind of surprised that it was number one because, uh, you know, yeah. sometimes the biggest one isn't always my favorite, but that one, I think it is, it does actually have kind of a cool groove it's kind of you know the earth move obviously that's the that's how you lead off the album for sure because like you said that for sure intro that just grabbed your attention but i think this one it is it is a, almost a very 70s one too because it also has like sax and guitar solos and stuff so which yeah which i was into so i, I like that song a lot so you're going to be quizzing me on on where the on the other six uh, best-selling albums let me quiz you uh, I'm looking at the Spotify. I'm looking at the Spotify rankings right now for Carol King. Number one is "It's Too Late." Uh, number three is "I Feel the Earth Move." Number two is another song off the same album. Which one do you think it is? I would guess it's "Where You Lead." Nope, that's number four. Oh, okay. I thought it might Good have gotten the Gilmore Girls bump. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you've got a friend. Okay, you've got a friend. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful would have been my second guess actually because of the musical, but Yep, yep. Oh, yeah. Beautiful actually Beautiful is actually pretty far down on the list. I think Beautiful gets a bump because it's the title of the musical, but if you like, I think if you go to that musical, you're still coming out singing the bigger right. hits, I would assume. Yeah, for sure. And I haven't seen that musical, but I do but I did know that the title of it was that, so I figured that's funny so which are there uh how many of the like the t- when does the first non-tapestry song appear on that list number seven bitter with the sweet off okay. of uh rhymes and reasons which is from 1972 and i gotta say i don't i don't actually know that song i probably do and i just don't recognize the title i didn't uh i didn't listen to that album yeah it, it's interesting too because i mean this is it's like i said the 11th best-selling album of the decade this is actually maybe the best selling or well it is definitely one of the best selling from the decade like people bought this in the decade of the 70s a lot because it took the lead for best selling album of all time period uh in 1973 when it overtook uh, like appropriately enough after hearing this the rest of these basically the best sellers were all musical like soundtracks before this there was the oh, interesting. sound of sound of music south pacific my fair lady oklahoma all of those 
were at one point before Tapestry the best-selling album of all time. And so then this comes out in 71, and by 73, I believe 10 million copies had sold, making it the best-selling of all time to that point. Wow. Take that, Sgt. Pepper. Yeah, and it actually maintains that title through most of the decade. Uh, Sound of Music retook the title for a little bit in 75, but then by in sometime, at some point in 76, Tapestry crested 13.5 million, making it the bestseller again. And then it would actually stay there uh, until 79 when another one on this list, which I won't say yet, takes it. And then that stays there for five years until in 84, Thriller takes the lead and never looks back. Interesting. I would never have guessed soundtracks. I guess I would have thought soundtracks were maybe like the 50s and 60s when that was kind of all, or 50s and early 60s before, mm-hmm. before like the heyday of the albums. Because by the mid to late 60s, early 70s, you've got the Beach Boys, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, Bob Dylan, the Who, Led Zeppelin. Like they're all coming out with albums that are just works of art in and of themselves. And before that, not so much. But by. By 1970, what was it, 71 when this album came out? I would have thought mm-hmm. the best-selling album would have been one of those. I'm, I'm surprised. Yeah, I guess, you know, I guess you'd have to figure that these musicals just had the most mass appeal still at that point. You know, yeah. everybody, you know, maybe everybody, someone had in the family everywhere liked those, whereas maybe everybody else in the family was kind of split one direction or another. But then in the, once by 73, everybody likes Carole King. So, I mean... It's, it kind of won everybody over, I think. Yeah, that's true. So then everything else on this list then, basically, you know, it, it gets its title from its long legs. So, I mean, everything we're going to hear next sells somewhere in between Tapestry and Thriller and does that over the next several decades, which is kind of I'm surprised. I'm surprised of the five albums that we're going to listen to that Tapestry is the least selling. I would have thought... I would have thought at worst third best, um, given the given the list that we're talking about. I would have thought I would have thought I know I know Eagles Greatest Hits, which we're gonna get to. I know how big a bestseller that is, but of the other mm-hmm. four, I would not have put at least two of these above Tapestry. Yeah, I, I wonder too if Tapestry has uh, uh, maybe perhaps less international appeal because some of these certainly sell overseas very well. Oh um, yeah, that may be. Because this, uh, so like we said, it was in 76, it hit 13.5 million, and currently it stands at 25 million worldwide. So, I mean, it sold a lot immediately and then kind of cooled off for the next 40 years. Kind of, you know. <laughs> and only sold 12 million more copies. <laughs> right, yeah, a paltry 12 million since then. Ugh, what are you doing with your life, Carol King? Uh, the next one on the list, the 10th best selling album from the 70s, 33rd best selling of all time. Uh, this is another one that we're listening to. You want to take a shot at what you think it might be? One that's on our list. Uh, mm-hmm. Goodbye, Yellow Brook Road. It is the seventh studio album from Sir Elton John, 1973's Goodbye, Yellow Brick Road. Uh, I'll play some of the, uh, the number one single from that, Benny and the Jets, and then we'll discuss that record.
For me, going into this episode, thinking about the top five, this was the song to beat for me going in. Like, I love this song. Benny and the Jets? Yeah. I So I'm listening to this album, and I'm, I'm actually kind of sad that we're talking about this before uh, Meatloaf, Bad Out of Hell, because I listened to them in reverse order. I listened to Bad Out of Hell, and then immediately jumped into elton john and that's a great way to listen to this album because the opening track off of this album funeral for a friend and love lies bleeding Mm -hmm. is absolutely not out of place at all as the last (laughs) track on bad bad out of hell like that is a meatloaf jim steinman bad out of hell song and it's the opening track on on Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. And that, I think, speaks to my problem with this album. And I always have the same problem with Benny and the Jets, too, which is that all of these songs are great. Like, Elton John is such... Elton John and Bernie Taupin together are such great songwriters. And Elton is such a great performer. He's such a great singer, pianist. He's so emotional with his with his songs and with his performance an album like this i don't think needs to be as produced as it is Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. there's a lot of production in this album and a lot of instrumentation and just a lot going on in all of these songs that i don't think need to be there so i'm listening to this album like oh I love this song when it's performed here. I love, oh, this song. I love this cover of this song. Oh, yeah, (laughs) this song. Oh, I love when this person covers this. I don't like any of the album tracks. Um, Like, I was kind of disappointed with this one just because it was so produced. Uh, And I know because this album is so popular and the songs are so popular, like, over the last 50 years, there have been so many great less produced covers that I just I had to stop listening to this album and go like oh yeah goodbye yellow brick road this is so good ooh let me listen to Sarah Bareilles's cover of goodbye yellow brick road because it's so good oh candle in the wind yeah this is a great let me stop listening to this track on the album and listen to the 1987 live version which is the definitive edition of candle in the wind because I like that version better and I just did that with every single song on this album (laughs) That's interesting. Yeah, I, there is definitely a lot of production uh, on this record for sure. And I have to imagine, you know, we don't we don't have an Elton John episode for this season, so that's why he's on here. But I think we definitely will mm. in the future because he's gonna. But like I said, this is his seventh studio album, so I've, he's got he's got a lot to talk about in the '70s. And I have to imagine too that like I mean, this is a double album, which will I'll ask the immortal question in a minute. But uh, I think you have to imagine by seventh album, like he probably was interested in going in a big direction. Uh, in this and this is obviously like another kind of nostalgia tinged record so i think there's probably a lot to on his mind a lot of ideas that he had and uh, maybe too many to some for some people but i think for me it it all worked i think this is a crazy good album and uh like like i said benny the jets i think is great the the, the singles are all huge i mean uh the title track saturday night's all right for fighting candle in the wind uh to me well, I'll ask you first. What do you think? Does this need to be a double album in general? Absolutely not. <laughs> I, we have not come across a double album yet that needs to be a double album. Um, what do we got? We got eight, 17 songs on this, uh, on mm-hmm. this album. Okay, uh, 
I will concede Funeral for a Friend because everyone loves that song. Candle in the Wind for sure. Benny and the Jets for sure. Goodbye Yellowbrook Road for sure. I don't like Saturday Night's Alright for Fighting, but alright. People love that song. That's great. Uh, Harmony is a really good song. Um, what else do we got? Uh, I've seen that movie too. I like that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, Roy Rogers because that's the that's the slower, less produced song. Um maybe all the girls love alice that's nine that's that's pretty solid uh, to me i think i mean i i like this as a double album i don't think the only one that i would really that i'm really skipping is jamaica jerk off which is kind of a throwaway anyway Absolutely. it feels like yeah agreed with I mean, that yeah and because this album started its production in jamaica which is i'm sure where the inspiration for this came but then they quickly right. moved to france after that probably realizing the, the whole album would sound like this if they stayed in jamaica so they <laughs> rightly got out of <laughs> yeah. it well, apparently, what was it? They were they were there recording the album, and there was like political turmoil and tension and upheaval. And George Foreman and Joe Frazier were supposed to be fighting in Kingston, and like thousands of people were there for that. And it was just like a big cluster. And they ended up having to go to France instead because it was just easier to to fly across the ocean to record <laughs> this album than to stay in Jamaica and deal with the big prize fight. Uh huh. Probably. But uh, Ooh, look, I've, if they recorded I've it on seen a Saturday, that movie. Though, yeah, well, you know, I've <laughs> seen that movie too. That's did I mention that one? That's another really good song. I think you mentioned that one. And honestly, the okay. uh, one you didn't mention, the song has no title. I think that's a really good song too. That's a pretty good one too. Yeah, and I, one I, of the I, less I, produced ones. Yeah, I'll I'll say that for if we want to if we want like an even ten song uh, mm-hmm. sing, uh, single album that would that would be a good ad. Yeah. But yeah, I think, like I said, that's the one, the Jamaica Jerkoff's the only one I would really move. I think this is a, a solid album for me, start to finish. The production doesn't get in the way for me. I think, uh, I don't know, I think it's a lot of fun. I like Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting, and I think that Your Sister Can't Twist is a good lead-in track for that. So that's mm-hmm. it might, that one might not be my favorite, but I think it works in the context of the album. So yeah, I don't know, I think this one's a lot of fun. I ended up listening to this one maybe the most of these. Yeah, that's fair. It's uh it's fun. It's like it's big and bombastic and I had just gotten done listening to Meatloaf and if you're going to do big and bombastic, there's no top in Meatloaf. So <laughs> Well, I think yeah, and, and we'll get to it obviously because that one is 77. So I mean, he's obviously taking a lot of cues from what came before. Uh and so I think yeah, the you know, this is a there are more through lines perhaps to Meatloaf and Elton John than you would have thought prior to listening to him, which you kind of alluded to. Yeah. I would not have thought that at all. And I feel bad about not loving this album because this is this is my, what was it, The River off the Springsteen uh, set mm-hmm. that I didn't like. Like, I feel bad about not liking this album because I love Elton John. Like, he's such a huge figure in music history and pop culture. And several of the songs on this album, I think, are just great songs. I just don't like the versions that appear on this album. <laughs> Yeah, certainly if you saw him on tour probably during this album's cycle, like that would probably be incredible, yeah. right? Yeah, for sure. And I think Candle in the Wind is actually the biggest offender here because I am of the specific age when when I started listening to music and when I became like aware of music when I was growing up, like seven or eight years old, that was when 
the live Princess 87 version of Candle oh. in the Wind. Well, no, not the Diana version, yeah, the earlier even one. Even before that, yeah. Yeah, the, the live version that was recorded in Australia, like that's the version that was on the radio, and that to me is the definitive version. Um, not the Diana version, not this, like that live version with a little bit less, uh, instru- with less instrumentation and just more emotion in the vocals. Like that's the definitive version of Candle in the Wind. So I had to stop listening to Candle in the Wind and go and listen to that song, and that <laughs> took me on this YouTube jag of, oh, I really love that version of Levon that he did in 1994. Let me listen to that again. It took me a day to finish listening to this album, <laughs> is what I'm saying. So it still probably could be a double album, but filled with versions other than appear on this uh, on this record. Yes. Maybe. I want the outtake version of, yeah, I want the Beatles anthology version of Goodbye <laughs> Yellow Brick Road, where we take like the finished products out and just replaced it with the like take one take two like what Uh what was this before uh let me look up his name gus dudgeon got his hands on it (laughs) and produced the hell out of all these tracks Mm -hmm. that would be interesting but yeah obviously you know this one i mean it's on this list it was very successful went gold only a couple weeks after it came out uh was the best-selling album of 1974 sold or sold steadily ever since uh certified eight times platinum in the u.s in 2014 and currently sits around 30 million worldwide. So th- this is his biggest one by far. The only other one uh, even close, There's a he has a greatest hits that comes out in 74, actually, that is his only other, like, big-selling one. Uh, and That's the one I own. Yeah, that's probably one. Everybody owned one one or both of those, probably. The yep. Yellow Brick Road and the Best Of. Well, next up, let's see if you can... This is the one we are not listening to this week, so you'll have to try and guess what the ninth best-selling album from the 70s is, the 27th best-selling album overall. See if you can guess, and then I'll give you a hint if you need it. All right. Uh, well, I have, my, I, have my list of, I have my list of six, but I don't, uh, but I don't know where they all fall. Uh, well, let me ask you, is there a live album that we're not covering? Uh, there, I don't believe there is a live album in the top 11 here, no. Okay, cool. So Frampton Comes Alive is not on this list. Cool. All That's right, correct. I'm, I'm wrong yeah. about one of them. <laughs> All right, in that case, Ditch, Ditch Frampton Comes Alive. Uh, Quadrophenia. No, but uh, it is a similarly uh, concept album. Uh, I can give you the year if you want. Yeah, give me the year. Uh, 1979, so right at the end of the decade. Ooh, concept album from 79. That's not Quadrophenia. Oh, is it The Wall? It is The Wall. Pink Floyd's yes. The Wall. Yes! No, I, I always think of The Wall as 1980 for some reason. Well, yeah, I mean, 79 is the last, obviously the last year of the decade, so a lot of these sales are after this decade because they only have a few months to get in there, but also hovers around 30 million, uh, So ju- and Wikipedia listed just ahead of, of Yellow Brick Road. Uh, the eighth best-selling of all time from the 70s. The This jumps up to the 12th best-selling album of all time. Uh, this one is, uh, well, to see, if you, see if you can throw another one on the list, uh, and well, I'll try and give you some hints after that. Uh, this is not, well, not one we're listening to. Not one we're listening to. Okay, well, mm-hmm. Frampton Comes Alive was one of the two that I wasn't sure about. Uh, let me toss out the other one that I'm not sure about, Off the Wall. Uh, no, strangely. Uh, okay, give me a year. Okay, it's uh, 1971. This is an, an earlier one. Oh, uh, Led Zeppelin Four. Led Zeppelin Four. yes. My next thing was going to yep. be that it's the band's fourth album. But yep. 
Yeah, that's around 37 million worldwide uh, and their bestseller for sure. Uh, which brings us now toward the next album we actually are going to listen to, the seventh bestselling of the 70s, 11th bestselling of all time. Uh, which one do you think this one is of these three we've got uh, left? God, of the three we've got left, uh, Grease. It is the Grease soundtrack, 11th yep. bestselling album of all time. Uh, the let me let me let me take a wild stab in the dark and say we've got one soundtrack left on the list that we haven't gotten to yet. There is one soundtrack, uh, although it is uh, yes, it, it is on this list uh, that we will not listen to today, but we'll hear later this season. We'll get to it later. Yeah. All right. Yep. And may or may not have an, an overlapping star with uh, Greece. <laughs> Maybe we'll see. Maybe. Uh, well, speaking of Greece, I'll play a little bit of Summer Nights, and then we'll talk about the soundtrack to Greece. Before we talk about the soundtrack to Grease, why, of all the songs that you could have chosen, did you choose Summer Nights? Because uh, it's early on. You know, it's a it's a very iconic song still, I think, people associated with Grease. Uh, but it is interesting because, like, there. what's funny is, you know, watch I watched the movie again, too, and then listened to this, uh, and then was reading about it. Uh, I didn't realize, too, that uh, both Hopelessly Devoted to You and You're the One That I Want were not actually part of the original 71 musical. Those were written for yeah. the movie. Uh, reading about, so I knew that much at least. Those two songs, uh, Grease, the, the theme song, also not mm-hmm. from the original musical, and Sandy, uh, John, Travolta, John Travolta's solo, which the less said about the better, because that song sucks, but the other three <laughs> songs are great. Uh, all four of those are original to the movie. What I did not know, what I learned reading about the musical for this episode was that... Greece started out as a very regional, like Chicago specific musical mm. where all the songs were really specific references to Chicago stuff, and all of the characters were specifically Polish Catholic and lived in this particular part of uh Chicago and went to this specific high school. And it was just a musical about Chicago. And uh-huh. it was so popular that they decided to take it to Broadway, and they were like, "We need to make this less Chicago focused. Can we, <laughs> can we take out this specific song about this specific beach and make it like just sort of a more general song about 
uh, a summer fling. They're like, well, I guess we can try. And then they come up with Summer Nights, which is such a smart song. I don't think this song gets nearly as much credit as it does for being as just spot-on brilliant in terms of the lyrics. And it sets up, you know, what's funny, like it sets up the, the, the kind of the idea of the movie and and the musical. And it's funny, like the movie and and potentially the musical, I haven't seen the, the a production of it, but the, the narrative is kind of formless in this. Like it's just kind of vignettes of these kids throughout their final year of high school. There's yeah. not really much of a, like a plot really to this, which I thought was kind of funny. And even in yeah, the movie, like... And, and... And less so with the musical than the movie. Like the music, the, the movie, they really thought about like, we need a through line. We need a narrative. We need to focus really heavily on specifically Danny and Sandy and make them kind of the main characters. And ooh, Kaniki's mm-hmm. got this song about a car. Let's give it to Danny instead. And that's Grease Lightning. Like they really mm-hmm. focused on those two characters and the, the original musical doesn't so much. Uh, and it's much more, yeah, vignette Um I don't know which one is better, but that's definitely the case. And I, I definitely imagine, too, that a lot of it is like, I mean, part of its success was well, almost certainly just John Travolta in general, right? Yeah. And, uh, and Olivia mean, Newton-John. She was, she was huge then, too. Yeah, which is also funny. I thought, uh, you know, you mentioned like they were just all the kids are from different neighborhoods in uh, Chicago in the original. And then when Olivia Newton-John comes to town, She's just literally from Australia. Like Sandy's yeah, just Australian yeah. in that, which I thought was funny. Well, they had to, they had to, because they were casting Olivia Newton John. So they had to, they had to change her character a little bit and they change her, they change her last name. So Sandy in the original musical is Sandy Dombrowski, which is the most Polish last name ever. <laughs> right. So when uh, Rizzo is singing, Look at me, I'm Sandra D., it's not just a reference to Sandra D. Like she's literally singing about her friend, Sandra D. Dombrowski. Mm. Uh-huh. Um, and it makes a little bit less sense in the uh, in the movie because they had to change her last name to Olsen because Olivia Newton-John is a great singer and a great actress. I don't know if she could ever pull off a Dombrowski, but uh, <laughs> she can pull off an Olsen all right. I wondered, I, I wonder too, if there's a, like a, a moment where they cast her and was like, okay, j- just give us your best American accent. And then <laughs> they heard it and said, okay, you're from Australia. Great. <laughs> you're from Australia now. It's all good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> It's funny too that a significant portion of the soundtrack here uh, is just Shanana performing like half a dozen songs from the show, which they do yeah. kind of at one of the dance scenes. You know, you get some yep. snippets of it, but a strong portion of it is devoted to that on the CD. Yeah, this is another double album that doesn't necessarily have to be a double album. Although I appreciate the fact that they that they really tried to be comprehensive. So you've got all the songs from the musical that are in the movie. You've got all the new songs from the movie that weren't in the musical. You've got all these Shanana songs that they that they included in the movie. And then the thing that I love is that they also included all the songs from the musical that they cut out of the movie and included those in the movie soundtrack anyway, which is nice. Yeah. Right, I know it is very comprehensive. Certainly, like if yeah. you're if if you're a Grease fan, this doubles then as the only one. It, it serves the purpose of being the only one you need, which I guess yeah. a lot of people needed because it ended up on this list. Oh yes, indeed. So yeah, that one was a surprise to see it this high on the list. Mm. Like I, I would not have guessed prior to this episode that the Grease soundtrack was one of the best-selling albums of all time. Favorite song off of this album. My favorite on this one actually is probably "Hopelessly Devoted to You." Mm-hmm. I think that's the best song. 
That's a good choice. I think hopeless, yeah, hopelessly devoted is my number two. Uh, You're the one that I want is my number one. I think that's a that's a, just a fantastic song. Um, both of which are are original to the movie and are are not mm-hmm. in the musical, but also both of which are now so popular that every time they stage the musical, they They're include in there, both yeah. of those two songs too. <laughs> Uh, Grease Lightning is fantastic. Beauty School Dropout is another uh, mm-hmm. just really smart song that doesn't get the credit it deserves. Uh, Look at Me, I'm Sandra D is also great, not just because it's a fun song and catchy and funny. It's also the gayest damn song in the world because every single <laughs> and totally unintentionally, like every single reference to... Uh, to a like a, a ma- like teen male heartthrob in that song is a reference to someone who turned out later to have been gay. Like Rock Hudson <laughs> gets a shout out, Sal Mineo gets a shout out, Troy Donahue gets a shout out, and he wasn't gay. But I keep forgetting that because he's in this song. That's funny. He's the exception <laughs> to the rule. Every other one. Well, it works too thematically because it does have. I like the reprise of it later, where Sandy's singing mm-hmm. it to herself too. You know. Yep. So, yep. So that's a bit of her character arc, which is nice. Yeah. Another fun thing that I knew that I that I learned about this uh, researching it for this podcast is now uh, Greece, like the the narrative structure of it and the storyline, uh, is 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 problematic because you've got this you've got this woman who like completely changes herself uh mm-hmm. and sexes herself up to to get her man who doesn't have to change at all in order to to win the girl and all of that is very problematic on gender role perspectives uh when this originally came out like the musical especially in the early 70s like it was considered uh an ode to feminism because the the woman is chasing after the man like she's the like she's the the proactive person at the end of the movie and like she makes a conscious decision not to uh fall into traditional gender roles of i just want to be a a goody goody little housewife and and all of that so you can you can make the feminist argument for it uh but not today so much like things have changed uh, so this is, uh, if you want the, if you want the, the, the analogy, this is the baby it's cold outside of movies <laughs> and musicals, which also started out as a feminist anthem and right. is very much no longer anymore. Yeah, I, I saw that too, actually. And I thought it was interesting that it's, he essentially purposefully made it a reversal of what would have been the standard, which was the guy changing for the girl, probably because he was the main character. So he's the one who has the arc, right? So it was interesting to see that it was a conscious reversal that now in 2020, 2022, it seems less progressive than it did 50 years ago, probably. But. All right, so the now we're moving on to the number six best-selling album from the 70s. Uh, this is not one of the two we've got left, so you'll have to guess again. What do you think? This is uh, the sixth best-selling of the 70s, number nine best-selling album of all time. Ooh. So what have we, we've said Led Zeppelin, we've said The Wall. Are those the only two that we've, that we've talked about? Those are the only two guesses that, yeah, that we've had to make, yeah. Okay, and, and Off the Wall is off the list, right? Correct. Okay, I've got three guesses left, which I know are on there, and then a fourth one, which I apparently haven't come up with yet. Uh, Dark Side of the Moon. That is not this one, but 
hold on to that one because it does appear. But it's going to be there. All right. Mm -hmm. um, ooh, give me a year. Uh, 1977. Rumors. It is Fleetwood Mac's Rumors, yes. Yep. Up, upwards of 40 million worldwide. Which, by the way, I'm sitting here trying to come up with the six, and as much as I love Fleetwood Mac and talk incessantly about how much I love that band, <laughs> it took me forever to come up with Rumors. I was going to say, my like, my only hint that I had even written down for this one was that, like, you should get this one. <laughs> <laughs> as soon as I thought of it, I'm like, oh, rumors, obviously, duh. But it was like 10 minutes of racking my brain before I finally came up with that one. I was like, oh, yeah, that one for sure. All right, well, just above that one, also hovering around 40 million worldwide, also released in 77. Uh, this, is, this is what overtook Tapestry uh, by the time 1979 rolled around. And it is one that uh, has been talked about slightly. This has to be Saturday Night Fever. This is the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. Yep. Eighth overall bestseller. So yeah, huge, uh, huge time for John Travolta. Yeah. Can you imagine like he started out doing Welcome Back, Cotter, and then all of a sudden he just explodes with these two movies? Uh, yeah, I can't even imagine. Saturday Night too, Fever like... is a... Saturday Night Fever is a great soundtrack and a terrible movie, by the way. I, I actually have never seen the movie, which I will have to watch because we're gonna we're gonna have an episode on disco later this season. We're gonna have the soundtrack on there for sure, so I'm gonna have to watch good, the movie and see. <laughs> good luck and Godspeed. It is way <laughs> slower and more depressing than a movie about disco has any right to be. That, that's what I've heard. Yeah, which makes me intrigued, really. But yeah, because you would think. I mean. Uh, especially like if you're just buying that and buying the grease soundtrack that you'd feel like they were both of a piece almost right yeah yeah <laughs> it seems like they're very not of a piece all right well the next actually one... if, if you're if oh. you're comparing if you're comparing a movie to, to saturday night fever the one that i always kind of associate with it is eight mile for some reason because mm. it's like poor kid growing up goes into performance whether it's dance or hip-hop and like performance in general to try right. to like dig himself out of poverty he's got this band of friends that are uh not very good influences like there's a lot of similarities between those two movies ironically eight mile is the one that ends on a positive note of uplift and <laughs> i don't really get that from saturday night fever like of the two movies you would think saturday night fever would be the one that's much more fun to watch but it isn't well and there's a sequel too isn't there to saturday yeah. night fever which yeah. i think is supposed to be even it's supposed to be terrible i have not i'm not even gonna try <laughs> well maybe maybe we'll get there we'll, we'll hold on to that we'll put a pin in the saturday night fever discussion for uh for a later <laughs> episode but... all right next up on the list we have the seventh overall best-selling album. Uh, we're at what the fourth of the uh, fourth best-selling of the seventies. Uh, take a stab, see if you can. Then I'll start giving you hints. Bad out of hell. Is it one? Is it one that we're doing? It is not. We've got two more uh, that we are going to that we're not going to talk about before we get to the other two. Okay, the only one left that I have that I've thought of is Dark Side of the Moon, and I imagine that's not it. That is not this one. There's one more. Oh. That this is a movie. This is a this is an album that I haven't even thought of yet. Is it is it the Who? Is it not Quadrophenia, but a different album? It is not the Who, and I'll I'll give you a little hint. It is uh, an album from an artist that we will listen to this episode. Ooh, um, 
Well, we've only got the Eagles <laughs> and Bat Out of Hell left, so it's got to be the Eagles. It is the Eagles. Uh, it was released right after the one we're going to listen to. Oh, Hotel California, yeah. Hotel California, released in 1976. That is the seventh yep. overall best-selling album, 42 million currently. Uh, oh. And now, right after that, you've got the third best-selling of all time. I think you can probably guess this one now. This is Dark Side of the Moon? This is Dark Side of the Moon. Sixth best-selling right. of all time. I believe still holds the record for most weeks on the Billboard album charts. It has 961 non-consecutive weeks and 724 consecutive weeks on the Billboard chart. Wow. Yeah. From, bad out, from 1973 bad out of hell to outsells Dark Side of the Moon. That, oh, that, which seems crazy, right? <laughs> oh, man. All right. I know. But uh, now for the number two best-selling from the 70s, uh, which of these two do you think it is? Well, I know the Eagles is number one, so it's got to be Bad Out of Hell. It is not. <laughs> Bad it is Hell not? is number one. Yeah, isn't that crazy? Really? When did that happen? <laughs> uh, well, we'll get to it. First, we have to talk about uh, the Eagles' greatest hits. Their greatest hits, 1971-75, currently sits around 47 or 44 million worldwide. Uh, fifth best selling of all time. Let's listen to one of these nights, and then we'll talk about this compilation. This is uh, just behind Bad Out of Hell, surprisingly. Uh, even before recent events, this was behind it. So, uh, and it danced, it danced around with uh, Thriller for the best-selling album in the U.S. for a while. So uh, we can go through that real quick. The, Thriller has the worldwide title and has since 1984. That hasn't changed. But in the U.S., uh, the Eagles surpassed Thriller in 99, only for Thriller to then take it back after Michael Jackson died in 2009. And then in 2018, actually, the their greatest hits took the lead again, and still holds a 38 million to 34 million advantage in the U.S. Mm. But Thriller obviously has the worldwide sales. So, gotcha. Is that also why Meatloaf is number one? Is it worldwide sales? It, yeah, it comes down to worldwide sales too. Yeah, I can see the Eagles being a very American band, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, of the 44 million worldwide, 38 of those are in the U.S., which is yeah. the, huge, the biggest margin of any of these on here. 
Yeah, this is the Star Wars of of bands. Like, this is huge in America and everywhere else. Like, yeah, we know them. We like them. <laughs> yeah. And even even here, I feel like, I mean, listening to this, I, I like One of These Nights. That's probably the, my favorite song on here. All of these songs are very ubiquitous, obviously. Uh, but to me, it's like, it's kind of just the most profoundly average song collection that, that could possibly exist right nothing is yeah. really that interesting on here to me all right lebowski um <laughs> and that, that certainly didn't help it any but what, what really didn't help it for me was that uh when i worked in best buy in college they there was an eagles concert dvd that was played continuously and so that didn't do it any favors either i, I yeah. really can't listen to anything from this after that but i mean there's there are 10 songs on this album and there's there definitely there's definitely a specific Eagles vibe, right? Like there's a couple mm-hmm. of songs that get a little bit more rocking. There's Witchy Woman, there's already gone. Uh eventually they'll get to like the end of Hotel California and Life in the Fast Lane, which is a which is a legitimately good like Eagles rock song. But most of these are just like slow languorous just like take like taking it easy kind of country rock and if you don't like that <laughs> yeah, or if you're just fine with it then yeah you're you're gonna not be anything more than fine with the eagles i like this album i think it's i think it's really good i'm not gonna go back and like i don't own it i won't own it i'm not gonna go back and listen to it again but these are 10 really good songs they are all like there's not a bad song is the thing so i mean i can see at least like we've said it before there there are bad songs on thriller so i can understand why people would choose one, the one over the other but obviously the highs on thriller are a lot higher oh but, for sure uh, yeah uh, it's funny too because uh the eagles manager irving azoff kind of took it upon himself to get this compilation going basically against the the will of the band they didn't really want to release it because they just saw it as a cheap cash grab uh that would undermine which, you know, which the ps came it before was <laughs> which like, it turned it out to absolutely be absolutely was yeah, it was the biggest cheap cash grab of all time basically because mm-hmm. and they were correct that it would under like under represent or like you know it'd make the people ignore their other albums because the four that came before this have nowhere near the sales of this or hotel california they this has sold obviously 44 million worldwide 38 in the u.s uh the four albums that came before this i looked up as of 2001 they had been certified platinum one to four times so they had each one of these had sold one to four million copies, even across forty years, so barely anything compared to the greatest hits. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, so correct all around. It was a big cash grab. It's gonna send all of your other albums into total obscurity. But you know what? Forty-four million albums. That's pretty good. Yeah, and it did. You know, they're willing to admit that it did kind of give them a little bit more creative freedom when they went to do Hotel California the next year. So, yeah, which I think is a good song, uh, probably better than any of the ones on here, but. Uh, and I think you're right that they kind of take a more, a slightly more interesting rock direction after this because it is this is all very mid-tempo country rock. Let's uh, like kind of emblematic of that '70s soft rock sound a little bit. Yeah, and I think you and I went in different directions with this one because you you like one of these nights, which is like of the ten, one of the more up-tempo songs that they have. My mm-hmm. favorite song on this album far and away is desperado and i would put that up against hotel california i don't know which of the two is my favorite well and that was another actually good idea from azov too because desperado is the only one of these that was not actually released as a single so putting putting that on there was the right move and also i do have to give him credit too for like 
these songs are not just simply in chronological order. Like he had some thought as to what order they should be in on here for the track list. I mean, it's still like a well-assembled cash grab, <laughs> which I think is uh, not all of them are usually. When did Simon and Garfunkel's greatest hits come out? Will we get to that in this episode, or was that still from the 60s? That, I believe, it's not on this list, so we won't get to it this episode, I think. Right, it, or I mean this, it, this season. Right, this season, not on this season either, but uh, we'll, we'll definitely hit Simon and Garfunkel at some point. I can say that that, that compilation sold less than Tapestry, so it's not even written down on the, on yeah. this, but... Because if, if you're talking about like, if you're talking about like a greatest hits compilation album uh, that does what you what you say the Eagles did, where they're not going chronologically, they're really being thoughtful about how this is placed, how we're placing each of these songs to make a coherent kind of narrative piece. Simon and Garfunkel's greatest hits to me is the gold standard for that because that's mm-hmm. they're really super thoughtful about the way those songs are put together. That's how. A greatest hits album should be and i don't think eagles greatest hits quite hits that level but i think you're right like they were definitely thoughtful about the way that they put these together yeah and i, I think uh, the, the other thing about that one especially compared to the eagles one is that there are actually that one is the, there is that one greatest hits that was from i think it was probably released if not late 60s then definitely early 70s that is uh the one that most people have bought but then the problem the only problem as far as sales figures are concerned is there are a couple other greatest hits that might include you know maybe some extra paul simon solo ones or stuff it kind of cannibalizes its own sales i think to a certain degree whereas this single eagles album was it for a long time then in the 80s there's a volume two which did not replace this one but was in addition to so i think as far as like overall sales having this one thing always be the greatest hits is probably the right business move and I think there's a couple other too, because like even Elton John, I think has, because that the greatest hits that comes out right after Yellow Brick Road, he records a lot of more music after that. So there's other greatest hits that come out that then include stuff post '74 or, or whatever that that then kind of makes it so that uh, you know you're buying different greatest hits over the years. I'm I think still that's part surprised of... to this day that the Eagles' greatest hits does not have Hotel California on it. Yeah, <laughs> well, it's, I mean, it is because, like I said, the Hotel California comes out the very next year. It predates so is, it, yeah. Yeah, this is 71 to 75, and then that laid the groundwork for 76 for Hotel California, which is, of course, on volume two. I mean, that's, and now a lot of times you can buy them as one. That's how I ended up getting it was because you get volumes one and two packaged together. Yeah. But now we move on to the number one best-selling album from the 70s, uh, the fourth best-selling of all time, currently sitting around 44 million worldwide, though, like we've said, that might jump up in the next few weeks. Bad Out of Hell, it's 1977 debut album from the recently departed Meatloaf. I'll play a little of the title track, and then we'll discuss that album.
screaming and the fires are howling way down in the valley tonight. There's a man in the shadows with the gun in his eye and a blade shining no so bright. There's evil in the air and there's thunder in the sky and a killer's on the bloodshot streets. Born down in the tunnel with a deadly horizon, no, I swear I saw a young boy down in the gutter. He was stopping the foam in the heat. There's gonna be some light But I gotta get out, I gotta break it out now Before the final cut of dawn So we gotta make the most of our one night together When it's over, you know, we'll both be so I mean, this surprised me as much as you that this is the best-selling one from the 70s. But I mean, if thinking about it, and we kind of talked about it at the top, this is kind of the ultimate 70s album. It has actually a little bit of all of these in it somehow. Yeah, it absolutely does. And we just did the Springsteen episode, and I mean, let's talk about how Uh weirdly similar Meatloaf is to Bruce Springsteen in terms of narrative and plot structure and where his where his speakers are coming from like it's that uh i'm growing up in a dead-end town and i'm gonna get on like for springsteen it's a it's an old classic car and for meatloaf it's a motorcycle but either way i'm gonna Mm -hmm. get on my like cool vehicle and i'm gonna drive out of here as fast as i possibly can possibly killing myself in the process but you know what you get you know yolo uh yeah hey baby get in get on with me and we'll ride out together um yeah (laughs) the the song bad out of hell is very much just thunder road for theater kids is what all i could think about listening to it yep and i Uh, i had not made that connection but we just did the springsteen episode so i'm listening to it like right on the heels of that and then reading about meatloaf for this episode, like one of the things that he, one of the the things that he had to shake in terms of criticisms was, oh, you're a Springsteen knockoff. And I never thought about Meatloaf as a Springsteen knockoff, but I can see where people would come, uh, would be coming from with that. Yeah. And even uh, there's a quote from uh, Todd Rundgren who produced the album. Like when he first heard these songs, he's like, oh, he's doing a parody of Bruce Springsteen. This is hilarious. Like that's, yeah. he was immediately like tapping into that and then was one of the few willing to actually run with it and record him so which worked out obviously because it sold a million copies after that (laughs) probably much happier working on this than he was on uh skylarking with xtc (laughs) afterwards almost certainly right (laughs) but i think also it is it does have sort of that same it's part of its appeal i think early on was almost the weird so uncool that it's cool cult following that it kind of built up i think uh, and it's obviously very theatrical it's reminiscent too of like rocky horror which meatloaf appears in before this 
I mean, yeah. there's definitely like an audience for this that was ready to buy it. Yeah, uh, very much like Rocky Horror, and it's very operatic, so let's throw Queen in there as well. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that, definitely. And I mean, it has like, you know, piano ballads that wouldn't be out of place yep. on Yellow Brick Road. It, it's got hard rock and soft rock somehow. So, I mean, you're, you're hitting so many different notes that are all the big 70s sounds on the same record. Yep. But what do you, what do you think of it in general, of, of Bad Out of Hell? I I like it. I this is the other one that I had heard from start to finish uh, already going into this episode. Um, this is I in terms of how much I like it, I rank it fairly close to the Eagles' greatest hits. Like the like mm -hmm. every single song on this album is good. I like them. I don't necessarily need to go back to them all the time. Um, Bad Out of Hell, like the title track, is one that is always frustrating for me because I think of Bad Out of Hell as this 10-minute opus that ramps up to this just huge operatic explosion at the end. And every time I listen to it, I get to the huge operatic explosion at the end, and it's not as huge or operatic as I remember it. And I'm like, oh, it ended. Uh, I was hoping it would be bigger. Which no one ever says about Meatloaf, but there you go. Right. Like, I was hoping this would be even bigger and more bombastic and more operatic than it is. But like, if you're going to go for it, go for it, right? Um, yeah. I think that's why Paradise by the Dashboard Light is such a great song, because talk about going for it. Like, let's, let's get Phil Rizzuto to record a two-minute baseball commentary that's also about a guy getting to second base, third base, trying to score... Uh, Let's get, is it, oh, who is it? Um, Ellen Foley uh, to just come in with just the greatest duet of all mm -hmm. time at the end where they're singing at each other. Like, this is such a great song because they go for it. Like, they go all the, like, they take this to the furthest possible extent that they could. Yeah. Uh, and... I, it's weird to say, but I wish this album did more of that than it already does. Uh, but it's it's still really good. So you wish this was the double album and not Yellow Brick Road, I think. Maybe. I mean, I mean, it eventually became a double album, right? Because there is a Bad Out of Hell 2. You can just stick them together and be good. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, Bad Out of Hell 2, which uh, this that came out in 93, and there were really was not much going for him between those two. That Bad Out of Hell 2 has the single, I Do Anything for Love, But I Won't Do That, which right. is number one and then propels that album back into the platinum status. But yeah, I mean, this it's kind of crazy to have your debut album come out and be one of the biggest albums of all time. Yeah, right. Crazy. That, it, I think it's easily the biggest selling debut album. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, that, it's hard to follow that in general. So I it's not really a surprise that it then takes like 15 years to even come close to it again. I'm looking at right now. I'm looking at, uh, cause I, I started thinking like, Oh, where actually does Simon and Garfunkel fall? So while we were talking, I, I did a Google search and I'm looking at the Wikipedia page for the best selling albums of all time. And I'm specifically looking at us numbers. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm not looking at the worldwide numbers, but I'm scrolling down to see, like, is there a debut album that sold more? Um, and I am seeing a couple. Uh, Appetite for Destruction sold more. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're just talking, we're just talking US, uh, US right, sales yeah. here. Uh, Alanis Morissette's Jagged Little Pill sold more. Mm-hmm. Um, Hootie and the Blowfish's Cracked Rear View sold more, although I think Bad Out of Hell tops it in worldwide sales by just a, just a scotch. Um, so there are a couple, but not mm-hmm. many. Very, very yeah. few. Uh, yeah. So then, uh, let's see. Can you guess? Uh, you probably with, maybe you saw them on the list, but then do you know what the three? Obviously, Thriller's number one. Do you know the two albums that are in between these for worldwide sales? Uh, ooh, for worldwide sales, uh, between mm-hmm. between the Eagles and Bad Out of Hell. Bet- between Bad Out of Hell and Thriller, so the, then the top top of the list. Oh, between Bad Out of Hell and Thriller. Uh, I don't. I mean, I'm I'm looking at this list, and ACDC's Back in Black is is real high up there. So I gotta assume that's one of them, right? That that is number two. So yeah, that's actually right behind Thriller, which is kind of surprising. Yeah. But Even looking at this list, ubiquitous one. Even looking at this list, I would not be able to tell you which of these is is the other big one. So the other one is a soundtrack from 1992, if that gives you a hint. Oh, The Bodyguard. The Bodyguard soundtrack, yeah. Gotta be The Bodyguard. <laughs> yeah, that makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah. Still with the soundtracks, like even even more recently. I know. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's funny. But uh, Okay, yeah, then, okay, so... So now I'm looking at I'm looking at the the best selling albums of all time in the U.S. Um, if I go back to let's see we've got Tapestry we've got Meatloaf we've got Greece is just nowhere to be found here where's Greece <laughs> Greece is way down there uh, but I've got Tapestry I've got Meatloaf I've got Eagles Greatest Hits. Um, and Goodbye Yellow Brick Road is actually quite a ways down too. Uh what are the what are the other best selling albums from the seventies in the US that we have not mentioned? Um uh, the yeah, the ones in in between. I mean, you know, we hit like uh the ones that we're gonna cover this season anyway. We got Dark Side of the Moon, you got uh Saturday Night Fever soundtrack, The Wall. Yeah. There's, there'll be a Pink Floyd episode, there'll be a disco episode, there'll be a Fleetwood Mac episode for sure. Nice. So lots of big ones uh still to come. Yeah. So okay, so uh looking at American looking at American sales, Bad Out of Hell sold 14 million in America. Two other albums from the 70s that we haven't mentioned yet also sold 14 million in America. Uh and they're both greatest hits albums. Simon and Garfunkel is one and the Steve mm. Miller Band is the other one. Oh, um, interesting. <laughs> weirdly, but ahead of that, ahead of that uh, is oh, and Elton John's greatest hit sold 17 million in America. That's his that's his biggest American hit. Uh, but also sev- selling 17 million albums in the U.S. Uh, is an album that we have not mentioned yet, Ooh, and it's okay. a debut. A it's debut a debut album. 70s. It's from from the 70s. 17 million album sales. What what year was it? 76. 76 debut album there's no way in hell you're getting this (laughs) i know i was looking over my shelf i don't know if i I probably don't have it i'm guessing you probably don't i don't know why you would uh boston oh okay you know there is actually that is one thing that bad out of hell also reminded me of like there is a boston guitar sound in that for sure yeah yeah definitely 
another another big bombastic rock album, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes total sense. Boston I do, will not be covered, uh, at least so far, on the show. <laughs> yeah. Well, the rest of the world will agree with you. Boston sold 17 million copies in the U.S. and 20 million worldwide, so... <laughs> so, yeah, like, yeah, practically Eagles numbers where America loves it and nobody else really cares. Pretty much, yeah. All right, so let's get down to our rankings for these albums. How do you... The five that we listen to today, how do you rank them? In terms of the albums? Mm-hmm. Uh, I shocks the hell out of me but number five is goodbye yellow brick road uh oh, i didn't okay. like it as much as i expected to uh number four is the grease soundtrack grease soundtrack is the one that i owned of these five i will stand by that decision to this day i think the the highs of that album are super high but there are a lot of sha na songs in there that are <laughs> not necessarily necessary mm-hmm. Um, and, and while a couple of the songs that they took out of the musical, uh, for the movie are really legitimately good and I'm glad they're in there. Some of the songs that they took out of the musical should have been taken out of the musical, uh, and Sandy sucks. So great (laughs) individual tracks, but as a piece, I think Grease is number four. Uh, number three is Bad Outta Hell. Number two is Eagles Greatest Hits. But let me listen to both of those albums like 15 more times and my ranking might flip. Those are like tied for second for me. Number mm-hmm. one by a lot is Tapestry. I love Tapestry. I love Carol King. She is so confident and understated. Like she's not trying to be a great singer. She's not trying to blow you away. She is confident enough as a performer, as a musician, as a writer, as a singer to know that these songs are great and all she has to do is play them and they're going to knock you out of the park. And she does that mm-hmm. and it's fantastic. I love that album. Yeah, it is fantastic. I mean, that's it's part of the it's the reason why it was the one I had of these five ahead of time. Right. Yeah. There's just a lot of really good songs on there. All right. For mine, you? I have uh, at number five the Grease soundtrack. It's yeah. You know, the one of these I'm not. I'm probably least likely to return to. I think you know. There's obviously good songs on there that are that are stood the test of time. But like you said, there's a lot of filler on there. And if I really want to hear them, I'd probably put the movie on instead. Ooh, let me let me let me see if I can pick your ranking here. Uh, okay. Number okay. four is the Eagles, right? Correct. Uh huh. Number three is Bad Out of Hell correct <laughs> number two is tapestry that's correct that's and number, number one, one is goodbye yellow brook road yeah yeah I, yeah it took me by, i think part of it you know i I love tapestry but i think having not heard yellow brook road before this it had that slight newness that probably gives it a slight edge for me and i obviously thought that all the production was good and was a very fun record to listen to that uh, yeah made it made it my number one that is the thing with this, with that album, as opposed to the other four, like with Tapestry, with the Eagles, with Bad Out of Hell, with Grease, like so many of the songs on each of those albums are already well known. Like you sit down, you listen to the album, you're not really listening to anything new. Goodbye Yellow Brick Road has the advantage of being a double album. Like there's five really familiar songs on it and then 12 others that you're hearing for the first time, probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. All right, so what? as we're talking about songs, which of the five songs across these records did you rank uh, as your top five? Uh, this was hard. Um, number five, Paradise by the Dashboard Light. And now I'm on my whistle, close and tight. And now I'm so good. 
probably the highest high, but it is an eight and a half minute long song. <laughs> it doesn't necessarily need to be, so that's number right. five. Uh, number four is Take It to the Limit. Uh, I, I li- I've always liked that song. Um, reading about it, like the history of that song and the fact that like that was Randy Meissner's kind of like time to shine and the history of the band around that song like adds a little bit of extra layer to it so i really appreciate that song Number three is my favorite song off of Tapestry, which is You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman. Um, Mm -hmm. I love that song, maybe not just because it's a great song on the album, but because I compare it to, and kind of the same thing with Elton John, like I compare the album tracks to the covers and the live versions and the other versions of the song that came along later and the album for me is wanting because those other versions are better this is the opposite of that because i compare it to aretha franklin's version which has the backup vocalists and the oops in the in the background which are totally unnecessary and carol king just dispenses with all of that because she doesn't need it the song's great i'm gonna sing it to you and you're gonna love it and that's all that has to happen uh, and I love the song for that reason. Uh, number two is Desperado. I've got another Eagles song in my top five. Okay. Uh, and then number one is You're the One That I Want, which I could listen to a hundred times in a row. Oh, nice. <laughs> Yeah, that obviously uh, going to be a lot different from my top five. Those are good. Yeah. <laughs> so for mine, I do give number five to the Eagles for one of these nights. I do think that's a pretty good song, and it's the mm-hmm. one off of that one that I like the most. Uh, at number four, I actually went with "Bad Out of Hell" from "Bad Out of Hell." I think that's a good I was choice. Torn between that and "Paradise by the Dashboard Lights," but I think "Bad Out of Hell" does rock a little bit more, and so that's that gives it a slight edge for me. I think. Honorable mention for "Crying Out Loud," also a great song. Mm-hmm. There's not a, none of the songs really are bad on here, which is yeah, which is worth worth pointing out. But uh, uh, number three, I go Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting. I think that's still a really good song. 
it was not not actually one I was expecting to have in there because I had heard it so much. But then, I don't know, hearing it again a few more times, I was like, you know what, this is a really good song. couple Yellow Brick Road songs on here that were new to me that, that just kind of missed the cut. This song has no title. This kind of was right about to make it in there. Uh, Gray Seal I really like. Um, uh, and even, uh, what's it called? Sweet Painted Lady I like a lot too. Seen that movie too. They're, mm-hmm. uh, they're all good songs, which is why that's my number one anyway. But number two, I go back to Tapestry for It's Too Late. I love that song. That's okay. the one that I, I'm always singing around the house if I'm picking one of these, especially if I'm late for something. Then, good choice. Uh, number <laughs> one. Number one, it was number one going into this, and nothing, nothing beat it for me. Benny and the Jets, still, yeah. I think, just such a banger. I love that song. Uh, also, honorable mention, uh, hopelessly devoted to you. Yeah, that if I was gonna pick, you know, if I had to do one from each, that would have been on here instead of Saturday Night's All Right, but uh, yeah. and probably would have pushed up one of these nights in Bad Out of Hell. But yeah, that that is a great song, and I thought about it, but I was like, I don't like it quite enough to to put it over the other ones. But that does it for the yeah, bestsellers. We heard, uh, you know, so many great ones this week. Uh, a lot of surprises, a lot of fun. I'm glad. To, I think the guessing game was a lot of fun. So I'm excited to cover all the ones that we also then alluded to then for the rest of the season. But uh, next up in our next episode, we are going to somebody who was not on this list but did dominate the music of the '70s, and that is, of course, Stevie Wonder. We will listen mm-hmm. to the eight albums that he released in the '70s. I'm really looking forward to that. So go ahead and make sure you're following the show on Twitter at Andy Hears It. Or see us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Andy Hears It. Make sure you're subscribed if you listen. Tell your friends to subscribe. Uh, give it a rating if you can do that there. And thank you all for listening. Thank you all to the al- artists out there who created these great albums. And of course, thank you, Aaron, for joining me. Thank you. Until next time, as always, it's never too late to discover great music that's new to you. Stay safe and see you next time.